It's good to see each of you here, and um, I'm thankful that we have the opportunity to worship together today. I didn't know, with all the backtracking of various things, if there would be a decree from the governor to um, shut down or scale back meetings at houses of worship. Um, the closest they came was to not be singing. Um, but I have cleared a spot in the woods. We have a nice place we can meet in the woods with open air, so we're ready just in case. How many, how many of you like to have church outside? And um, someone's working with me getting a parachute so we can cover up the area so the sun does not shine down and uh, we could have some more logistics there. If you're interested in helping me with the logistics on that, just let me know. But I think it'll be great to try that out. And uh, you could even leave your cell phones at home. So your cell phone could be sheltering at home while you're sheltering in God's word. Can you say amen? We might need to think about those things at some point. Okay, well, let's just, uh, let's just, I'm going to make a remark. I think that we actually should be calling our services protests because then we can uh, actually maybe get more accomplished. Now, our protest may be a little different than the protest that you see on television or read about or hear about because our our church is part of what's called the Protestant Reformation, but it's actually the radical Protestant Reformation. And those reformers that I have pictured up here, you know, um, especially Luther, which was one of the seminal reformers, um, the word Protestant actually comes from 1529, a council that met in a German city of Spires, enacted a decree that would restrict the preaching of the gospel to the areas that already adopted Reformation teaching and required that no new reforms be adopted. And the church demanded that the German princes who supported the Reformation accept the decree. And those princes did not go out necessarily and physically picket. Um, in fact, these princes never even met um, the elector of Saxony never met Luther. He never met him. But he wrote a letter. <laughs> German princes rejected the decree and issued a document. And here's the document. We protest by these presents before God, our only creator, preserver, redeemer, and savior, and who will one day be our judge as well as before all men and creatures that we for us and our people neither consent nor adhere to any manner in any manner whatsoever to propose decree in anything that is contrary to God, to his holy word, to our right conscience, and to the salvation of our souls. So they sent a letter, and I might suggest that writing something out and even today and flooding the uh, mailboxes of those that you want to get your message about might be more effective than actually even marching downtown. They'll be able to read it later and they can then ponder it. And uh, so Luther then said, unless I'm convinced by scripture or clear reason 
for I do not trust either the Pope or in councils alone, since it is well known that they have often erred and contradicted themselves. I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything, since it's neither safe nor right to go against conscience. God help me. Amen. So this drumbeat of the Reformation was freedom of conscience in areas of worship. All right, that's not part of my sermon, but I just wanted to say that. So let's just pray, and then we'll begin the message today. Father in heaven, we're so grateful we can study your word. Lord, I'm not able to cover this message effectively, um, except with your help, and we're not able to hear it without your help. So we ask you to be here through the agency of your spirit and that you would speak to us and translate the message to each of us individually, including myself, and give us additional insights that we may need in our own specific situations. In Christ's name, amen. We've been uh, um, studying the abomination of desolation, a little phrase in Matthew chapter 24. So I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 24, and we'll look there. Now, in our first message on the abomination of desolation last night, we saw how the abominations in Israel led to the desolation that came upon them by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians and how they were taken captive and their sanctuary was actually desolate, left desolate, and they were taken into captivity for 70 years. And then this morning, we studied how the temple had been rebuilt um, by the decree and the prophecy in Daniel chapter 9. And they've been able to come back to the land of Israel. They've been able to come back to Jerusalem. They've been able to rebuild their house. And in fact, even though it didn't look like Solomon's, the desire of the nations would come into it, says Haggai chapter 2, verse 8. And the desire of the nations is also the desire of ages. We have a book that many of us are aware of called The Desire of Ages. And he actually came into the temple that was built to point towards him. But sadly, as prophesied by Micah in chapter 3, they, he came to his own and his own received him not. And not only did they not receive him, they actually turned against him. And the key element that led to their desolation of their sanctuary, which was ultimately torn down by Titus in AD 70, was that they had a blending of church and state against Jesus. And the church and state came together. The Sadducees, who were, you might say, the liberals of the day, they were most, mostly interested in money, outward things. They didn't believe that there was a resurrection. This was all you got. And so when they went to church, they were working to network to make sure that they could make more money. They were very interested in those kind of things. And then you had the Pharisees that were kind of the, the arch conservatives of the day. They prided themselves in the fact that they could uh, quote the law, and not only the law, additional laws. So when Daniel and his folks were taken captive, it was because the nation was lax. On Friday night we went through that. And they had all kinds of problems going on, which we covered as we looked at um, 
2 Kings chapter 22 and 23. They had lost the Bible. They had lost the spirit of prophecy. They had ordained people that were leading in false worship. They had um, idols and they had sun worship and they had moon worship. In fact, Sunday had become a big day for them. And they also had homosexuality inside the temple. So in that text that we read right here in Daniel chapter 24, it says, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand, part of that abomination was uh, homosexuality and uh, gen, uh, sex issues, worshiping of Baal, immorality, and it actually was inside the temple. But also, the thing that really took Daniel or that time period into captivity was their rejection of the Sabbath. And that's why it says in 2 Chronicles chapter 36 that they had to stay in captivity for 70 years, uh, a year for each year that the land had not kept her Sabbaths. And so the key catalyst was a union of church and state that had turned against God and had gone against his law in many ways and had especially broken the Sabbath. In Jesus' day, like we learned this morning, it was that the Sadducees and the Pharisees came together with the Herodians finally, and they, they again did many terrible things, but the catalyst at the end, like we learned this morning, and I invite you to listen to that message if you didn't hear it, was Jesus' Sabbath miracles. He did seven Sabbath miracles. How many miracles did he do? Seven Sabbath miracles. The first two or three, they didn't pay any attention to, actually the first two. But the third one, they came and they started to watch him. And they said, and then they began to question him. And then they said, you shouldn't do that. And then they said, if you do that again, <laughs> you know, we're going to kill you. And in fact, they did. And so it was a church-state union in Daniel's day with a disregard of the Sabbath that led them into captivity. It was a church-state union in Jesus' day where you had the Herodians representing Herod and the Romans, the Sadducees and the Pharisees coming together in a union that then, um, you know, questioned Jesus concerning the Sabbath. And like we mentioned this morning, in one phase of desolation, the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, phase one, the real issue was licentiousness. In the second phase of the abomination of desolation, it was legalism. So which is worse, legalism or licentiousness? They're equally terrible. They're both abominations. And this is some point we sometimes, uh, you know, fail to recognize. Now, in this third phase, third phase, an application of this text that we find in Matthew chapter 24, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, we go back to the book of Daniel again, and... Uh, Let's just look there. I don't have it this way in my slides, which is why I don't like to have slides. But I feel like we need to look at the Bible first here. So, there are several other texts about the abomination of desolation. Let's look at one in Daniel chapter 8. So, in Daniel chapter 8, 
We looked at one in Daniel chapter 9 uh, with the 70 weeks this morning, but let's go back to Daniel chapter 8. In Daniel chapter 8, you have this picture of all the kingdoms um, that are passing on the stage, and you have then this kind of summary text. Verse 13. Then I heard, Daniel chapter 8, verse what? Then I heard a holy one and another holy one said to that certain one who was speaking, How long will the vision be concerning the daily? Sacrifices is an added word if it's in your Bible. How long will the vision be concerning the daily? And the transgression of desolation, there it is, the abomination causes desolation, and the giving of both the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot. So here you have another text that's dealing with the abomination of desolation, okay? But this actually has a time marker with it in verse chapter 14. And he said to me, For 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. So this abomination of desolation would happen 2,300 days later, not just any day, days on which the sanctuary was cleansed. How many days out of the year was the sanctuary cleansed? Once a year. And it's saying there how many of them? 2,300, which would be how many centuries? 23 centuries. How many of you are following what I'm saying? Because it's one a day. Or it's one day a year. So this is 2,300 days of atonement. And after that time, you would have, you, you would have developing this abomination of desolation around that time period. How many centuries before... Christ um, was the book of Daniel written. Like five centuries, right? Five um, minus 23 is what? 23 minus 5 is what? 18. So when you moved it to, you know, instead of B.C. and you go to A.D., this prophecy would take you down just by using simple logic, we could do it other ways, but it would take you down sometime near the 1800s. And it's at that time there would be another abomination that was causing desolation. Look back at verse 12. Why was it causing desolation? Daniel chapter 8, verse 12. Because of transgression, an army was given over to the horn to oppose the daily and he cast truth to the ground. He did all this and prospered. So, you have, a, you have an entity, Little Horn Power, that has an army given over to it, and it uses that army to, what? Persecute people and cast truth to the ground. How many can see that that's similar to what we saw in Jesus' day? So we have a church-state power. This Little Horn Power is identified by um, Protestants, classically, as Roman Catholicism, but it was also identified by Catholics as Roman Catholicism for a time period. 
Remember one time there were three popes. I remember this. There were three popes at one time. And guess what? They called each other. They called each other all the Antichrist. And guess what text they used? Same text that Protestants use. We just happen to still agree with them. So they used those texts. And so this power would come at the end of time. And it would be a church-state power that would arise. After Jesus came... And after he died, did the gospel go everywhere rapidly? It did. I remember that. Colossians chapter 1, verse 23, it says that it was preached wherever there was a creature in one generation. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, every single chapter in 1 Thessalonians 1 says, well, let's look at this. I want you to get this idea so you can get an idea when this, this power would come up. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. By the way, 1 Thessalonians was one of the first books that was released in the New Testament. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 ends in verse 10 with a picture of the second coming. To wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. So chapter 1 basically says he's coming again. Chapter 2, verse 18. Therefore we wanted to come to you, even Paul, Time and again, but Satan hindered me. For what is our hope, our joy, or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? You are our hope. You are our glory. You are our joy. So chapter 1, at the end, last verse, second coming. Chapter 2, second coming. They believe he's coming soon. Chapter 3, end of chapter 3. Now, verse 11, may our God and Father himself our Lord Jesus, direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another, just as we do to you, that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. So chapter 1, second coming. Chapter 2, second coming. Chapter 3, second coming. Paul believes Jesus is coming again. Chapter 4. Look at the end of chapter 4. Verse 16, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with, with these words. In other words, we're going to see him come. We're going to be caught up. How many can see that there's a Real belief that Jesus is coming soon in Thessalonians. Chapter 5, end of chapter 5. Now, verse 23. May the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's going to be a people that are ready when Jesus comes, and they say, we're going to be the ones that are ready. And if you read all the context of 1 Thessalonians, it tells you how to get ready. But did Jesus come at the end of 1 Thessalonians? He didn't. So look at 2 Thessalonians and see what happens. And it will bring into relief this desolating, abominable power that was foretold not only by Paul, but by the text we're going to look at later in Daniel chapter 11 and Daniel chapter 12. First, or Second Thessalonians chapter 2. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord and our gathering, to, 
gather to him, we ask you to not be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless a falling away comes first, and the man of sin is revealed, that son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God, and that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Do you not remember when I was still with you, I told you these things? And now you know what is restraining, that he will be revealed in his own time. And what is he doing while he's in the temple of God? Which is a code word in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17 for the church. What is he doing? Verse 7, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so who he has taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed who the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. And the coming of the lawless one is according to all the working of Satan with power, signs, and lying wonders and all unrighteous deception among those who perished because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them a strong delusion that they will believe the lie. So, Jesus dies. The gospel goes everywhere in one generation. The first book released in the New Testament is 1 Thessalonians, and they say, Jesus is coming again. He's coming again. He's coming again. He's coming again. He's coming again. Wait! He didn't come again. Why? Because there must be a falling away that comes, that the man of sin might be revealed. And who is that man of sin that's revealed? That's someone that's sitting in the church, that's lawless, and sets up an abomination that causes desolation. How many can see this? Okay. So now let me go to what I was going to talk about first. I, I kind of gave you my Bible study first. <laughs> Not like my slides. You know, James Madison wrote a letter to Thomas Jefferson. He said, perhaps it is a universal truth that the loss of liberty at home is to be charged against provisions against danger real or pretended from abroad. James Madison, one of the framers of the Constitution, he said, look, America is very fragile when there's a lot of stress and pressure on it from outside and inside. And so even though we put together this Declaration of Independence, and even though <laughs> we, we framed the Constitution, and even though it took us a long time to get the Bill of Rights together, by the way, America was never known as really America as we know it um, until 1798. That's how long it took to get the Bill of Rights ratified. And the colonies would not sign off until it did. Did you know that? So although there was a Declaration of Independence on July 2, and a document came out on July 4, it wasn't until 1798 that it actually was seen as a nation by the most powerful nation of that time, or most influential, which was France. And France sent them a nice little statue, the Lady of Liberty. How many of you are following me so far? And the big thing that kept Madison awake at night was, what happens if we get a lot of pressure from outside, and what happens if we get a lot of pressure from inside? It might fall apart. How many of you are kind of worried about that even today? And it only takes... 
uh, COVID virus, and now there's another one. CDC takes action to prepare against G4 swine flu viruses in China. In the same way, more is coming. How many of you are kind of on the edge already with all the stuff that's been happening? There's been racial disharmony, ethnos against ethnos. Matthew chapter 24 talked about. There's been a pestilence, probably the best known pestilence of all history because it's communicated instantly all over the world. There's been betrayal of people one against the other. There's been false prophecies. Someone's saying that there's going to be fireballs that hit Nashville, July 18, and they have all these kind of scenarios that are worked out, even though, and these are Seventh-day Adventists, or former Seventh-day Adventists, even though it says, and that my message last Sabbath morning, listen to it if you haven't, that there will be time no longer. We're not to be setting time prophecies. We're not to do soft sell ones like, oh, it's almost 7,000 years. That's a soft sell time prophecy, and God says don't do that. Or even more particular ones. So there's that's happening. False Christ, false dreams. I got at least three emails this last week with dreams that people wanted me to look at to analyze. As I looked over them, I realized they're false dreams because they had false prophetic scenarios related to the dream. So they have error mixed with truth, which means they're not true. How are you with me on this? And then it says lawlessness would abound in the text in Matthew chapter 24. And we see that the Supreme Court recently has handed down rulings that specifically go against six of the Ten Commandments. And so lawlessness is abounding in terms of what the high court is doing, and by the way, it's functioning correctly if it's reflecting, you know, the populace, but it's not even doing that. It's making decisions without even going to Congress, and I'll show you kind of why that's happening in a minute. And then you have this added stress that's coming, and I, I found it interesting, this Dynamics of Disaster by Susan Kiefer. Disaster creates conditions particularly fitted to rapid alteration of belief systems. Disaster produces questioning, anxiety, and suggestibility that are required to change. Only in its wake are people moved to abandon old values of the past. This should terrify us a bit, but this should also motivate us. This is the best time to talk to people about God. They're in transition. They're open. Number three, belief systems which under non-disaster conditions might be dismissed in a disaster receive sympathetic consideration. So you have everybody throwing the kitchen sink at the pandemic. I'll take advantage of it for my personal agenda. Don't waste a good pandemic. Don't waste a good crisis. And this is what the scholars say. They say, look, this always happens. So when this, I mean, I'm sitting, in my, I'm sitting in my house, minding my own business with my lovely wife and my children sitting around me as olive shoots around the table. And I get yet another report from the Supreme Court this last week coming down with two decisions. And I'm like, what? It's almost as if, it's like, it's almost as if God is allowing people to see all of the elements that are in Matthew 24 kind of come to the surface at the same time. How many of you just understand that? 
and I'm going, wait, but it's almost like they're in sequence because, well, I'll show you what I mean. Um, there are agendas out there to try and, and, and kind of move things different ways. The United States Supreme Court may soon liberate, this was written a number of years ago, the biblically conservative church from old prejudices that should have long ago been jettisoned, forcing it to rightly bow to the enlightenments of modernity. So it's saying, look, we hope the Supreme Court starts to make rulings. This was written about five years ago. We hope they start to make rulings because... We need to move on beyond the Bible. And in fact, Georgetown University, Catholic institution, says this, one of their scholars. They said this a couple years ago. The American system of government is broken, but almost no one blames the culprit. Our insistence on obedience to the Constitution, with all its archaic, idiosyncratic, and downright evil provisions... Saying, hey, look, they were slave owners. Look at this. They said it was equal, but they're not equal. We need to get rid of it. Get rid of it. Get rid of it and all the 18 presidents that had slaves. Get rid of them, too. Tear down the monument of Madison. Tear down the monument of Jefferson. They own slaves. And in that ilk, he continues. Instead of arguing about what to be done, we argue about what James Madison might have wanted to be done 225 years ago. Why are we even listening to Madison, he's saying? And then he says, there is something to be said for an elite body like the Supreme Court with power to impose its views on political morality of the country. He says exactly what's been happening over the last several months. He says... Well, you guys can't decide in Congress. No one's going to listen to the president. Let the Supreme Court impose its views of political morality on the country. And that is exactly what has been happening. John Roberts, last week, this is the headline. There's many of them. Like 30 articles, this is just the one that I thought was most shocking. John, John Roberts, are most accurate, John Roberts just bulldozed the wall separating church and state. His stunning 5-4 decision forces states to fund religious schools and augurs even more radical rulings down the road. Religious schools should have the same access to scholarships and funds as private schools. The justices ruled in a victory for conservatives. A sweeping 5-4 decision forced a majority of states to fund private religious schools in a ruling that compels millions of U.S. taxpayers to subsidize Christian education, even if financing another's religion violates their own beliefs. Incredibly, this maximalist decision did not go far enough for two conservative justices who would apparently let states establish an official religion. These are all code language words taken directly from the Constitution that there should be no establishment of a religion. How many of you are following me with this? And you might say, well, that, that sounds good. I mean, Weimar's needed some money. Finally, the government's going to send it. Oh, my friends, don't take the crack cocaine. <laughs> because if you take Title IX money, you also have to abide by Title VII, which was passed last week.
But there's many more problems. 18 years ago, Zelman Smith Simmons, a bare majority of the Supreme Court, ruled that under the Establishment Clause, states are allowed to fund public private schools through vouchers. Now the court has declared that under free exercise, most states are compelled to fund private religious schools. The conservative majority has revolutionized church-state law in record time. The upshot, taxpayers in most of the country will soon start funding overtly religious education, including indoctrination of children into a faith that might clash with their own... What? Conscience. What does the Supreme Court have to say to Montanans who do not wish to fund religious indoctrination that contradicts their own beliefs? In short, they say, too bad. Your rights just don't matter as much. This decision flips the First Amendment on its head. The Amendment's Free Exercise Clause protects religious liberty. Its Establishment Clause commands the government to make no law respecting an establishment of religion. The government, Roberts explains, has no compelling interest preserving separation of church and state beyond what the First Amendment requires. And then he says, nor does the government have any interest in protecting taxpayers' right not to fund religious exercise that infringes upon their own beliefs. We do not see how the no-aid provision promotes religious freedom, said the chief justice, who also is a Roman Catholic and was schooled in Roman Catholic thought, just like that professor from Georgetown was. And from the Catholic perspective, there is nothing wrong with this. Absolutely nothing wrong. Especially since they have the majority of schools. <laughs> and it would be like establishing their existing schools. Make no mistake, many schools are failing right now and will be knocked out of the game. But the only ones that will exist that are private schools... <laughs> are those with deep pockets and long histories. And this, by the way, is Roman Catholic thought. The reference to school choice in canon law means that the Roman Catholic Church favors voucher programs. Roman Catholic schools in the United States from kindergarten to university ought to receive hundreds of millions of dollars of tax subsidies, not through their tax-exempt status, but through a provision of transportation, textbooks, teacher salaries, research grants, construction loans and grants, and forth and so on. Voucher programs, however, will permit Roman Catholic schools to receive hundreds of millions and billions more tax dollars. And this ruling last week will only accelerate that. We must use the doctrine of religious liberty to gain independence. Now, this is now the evangelical side of the thing. They're all saying, even the Trump administration, this is a great win! Because he stands in front of monuments with a Bible and all the people on his press corps wear crosses. This is all meant to manipulate Christians. We must use the doctrine of religious liberty to gain independence for Christian schools until we train up a generation of people who know there is no religious neutrality. Then they'll get busy in constructing a Bible-based social, political, religious order which finally denies the religious liberty of the enemies of God. Why? Because church and state come together just like it did in Jesus' day. present effort of church to get the state to enforce the observance of Sunday and introduce the teaching of Christianity in state schools is but a revival 
This is Ellen White speaking, of the pagan, papal doctrine of force and religious things, and as such, it is anti-Christian. And on the evangelical side, if you go to 100 churches, 99 of them are going to say this, there is no such thing as separation of church and state. It's merely a figment of the imagination of infidels. The Constitution was designed to perpetuate a Christian order the concept of a secular state was virtually non-existent in 1776 as well as 1787. But those are the wrong dates, my brothers and sisters. America did not become a nation until 1798 after the Bill of Rights, including the First Amendment, had been passed. And so you have people that are ignorant of history that are being led down a path one of two paths. Perhaps Roberts, this article from the magazine or the news that I was just reading to you, can't see what's the problem with this, but James Madison certainly could, and that's why I named my son James Madison. James Madison Sabbatismos, to be exact. <laughs> James Madison and the Sabbath. Now, he's probably not wanting me to say that, but... Madison famously opposed a Virginia bill that would have taxed residents to support teachers of the Christian religion, condemning it as a signal of persecution that violates religious liberty. He asserted that religion could not be forced on people and that state support actually corrupted religion. Government properly limited rather would promote a civil society in which people of different faiths could maintain their beliefs according to their own consciences. He said, yeah, there's going to be all kinds of religions in America, but at least none of them will be in the majority. They can fight it out, but they're all going to be healthy. <laughs> Unless we prop some of them up. Unless we take a majority rule and say, wait, where's the majority? And you know, the court has been tending this way since the 90s where it says, we'll just help the majority religion. That's a way of establishing religion. And it's interesting to me as I listen to these two justices, Roberts and Gorsuch. Gorsuch comes out with a ruling that is specifically tailored to promote his own church, which has all the same values. And then Roberts comes out with a ruling that promotes his own church. How many of you understand what I just said? You have to know what the rulings were. Last week it was redefining sex so that the Civil Rights Act could make a space for those which God calls being involved in abominations. <laughs> Their activities, according to Scripture, are abominations that cause desolation. And you know what? Nobody says it, but it's true, even scientifically. But nobody wants that science anymore. But if you're involved in those behaviors, you're going to have desolations in multiple organ systems. But some churches think that's okay. Gorsuch Church thought that was okay. So he passes something and goes along with the others that goes along with his church, almost establishing his church in a sense, at least in that Title VII arena. 
And then the whole court goes along and says, wait a minute, maybe we'll just give money to all religious schools. So why was Madison like this? Well, you know, Madison, in early America, the Church of England became entrenched in power and was having increasing influence over political affairs. Nine of the colonies had established official state religions, and Virginia was the one where there was a test case where both Madison and Jefferson worked to change that because these established religions were persecuting people. If you went to Virginia, what was Virginia? It was named after who? The Virgin Queen, Elizabeth. So if you went there and you were Episcopal, your Church of England, you're okay, but you get persecuted if you went out of Virginia. If you went to Maryland, what do you think the religion was there? Catholic. If you went to Pennsylvania, what do you think the religion was there? It was Quaker. And Roger Williams said, forget this. All these people are, well, what were they doing? What were they doing in these places? Settlers would attend morning and evening prayer every day, and those who shall often willfully absent themselves from these divine services will be punished according to the law. For first offense, settlers already living on the edge of starvation would lose a day's provision of rations. For a second offense, they would be whipped, and a third... They would be sentenced to serve in the ocean-going galleys for six months. And then it got worse. Jails, fines, floggings, and sentences in exile or death were commonplace before federal guarantees of religious liberty began to take effect. And those took effect with the Bill of Rights, which was ratified finally and fully in 1798. We have all kinds of people pointing back people to the history before 1798, and a time of persecution. A time where church and state came together to persecute. And Madison and Jefferson said, enough of that already. Jefferson writing in 1802, 1798, 1802. Notice the date. Believing with you, writing to the Baptists in Virginia, that religion is a matter which lies between man and his God, I contemplate with sovereign reverence that, a whole, that the whole American people which declared that their legislature should make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, thereby building a wall of separation between church and state. And Jefferson thought that was very, very important. Why did he think that? What year was it? What year was it? What year was it? January 1802. <laughs> what had just happened where he just came from? He was our representative of our government to guess what nation? France. <laughs> and guess what he had just seen in France? He had seen the French Revolution. Why was there a revolution in France? Because church and state had come together and they had killed all people that disagreed with them or made them leave the land. The Huguenots, St. Bartholomew's Massacre, the Albigenses, the Waldenses, all these groups were persecuted 
with church and state together. And so Jefferson said, that don't work. That dog does not hunt. That watermelon should not be sliced. We're not doing that here in America. Let us separate church and state. How many can see why he came to this conclusion? Because I'm not sure he understood the prophecy I told you about. I showed you the prophecy, didn't I? That this power, little horn power, would get an army given to it and would cast truth to the ground and would do that from 538 to 1798. And that's what was happening, religious persecution, all during that time. And he said, let's not do that anymore. Let's have a republic. And let's have a separation of church and state. Let's have a nation without a king and a church without a pope. <laughs> because we've seen that when you put those two together, it's always toxic unless God himself is leading it, like a theocracy, right? Madison chimed in as well, strongly guarded, as is the separation between religion and government in the Constitution of the United States. The danger of encroachment by ecclesiastical bodies may be illustrated by precedents already furnished in their short history. In 1776, Virginia adopted a Declaration of Rights that proclaimed in no uncertain terms all men are equally entitled to free exercise religion according to the dictates of their conscience. Patrick Henry wanted to say religious tolerance. Madison said, no, not tolerance. <laughs> that means they can change if they want. No, we have to word it this way. And then finally, what they did in Virginia is what was done in America. And now Jefferson's grave, if you visit, he says, the most important thing I did was that ruling in Virginia, not being president of the United States. Madison and Jefferson both died on July 4. Or was it? It was uh, Adams. Both died on Adams and Jefferson. Both died. They were kind of enemies on this. Adams wanted to kind of be a king. That's why he didn't win a second term. You've got presidents that try and act like kings. They usually don't win second terms. Because Americans don't like that. I'm not making any political statements. I'm an independent. But I'm just sharing history with you. Now notice what it says here. This is ensconced now from this study in our Constitution. Congress shall make no law establishing religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, nor shall the rights of conscience be infringed. How many think that's just a beautiful statement? And yet, it's under attack by the rulings of the high court. How many can see that? And how many of you think you should be concerned about that? So, I don't know why I had this twice. Maybe it's good. Maybe it's something I should repeat. Now, what about this French Revolution? There's no period of history in the world that can be compared in point of interest and importance to that which embraces the progress and termination of the French Revolution. In no former age were events of such magnitude crowded together or interest so momentous as issue between contending nations. 
From the flame which was kindled in Europe, the whole world has been involved in a conflagration. A new era has dawned upon both hemispheres for the effect of his extension. In other words, the French Revolution was in everyone's mind, and they represented one approach to what to do. And America represented another approach of how to have a revolution. In the French approach, they said, Egalité! Everyone is equal. Do away with all issues in terms of gender, sexuality. They were the first nation ever to pass a rule that supported homosexuality. Did you know that? French. They said, treat the animals as equal. Become vegetarians. Voltaire was a vegetarian. They said, look, get rid of the guilds. Knock them all down because you should be able to eat cake. <laughs> and not just have the royalty do it. And so they came up with things called restoratives, which then turned into a word called restaurantes. Restaurants. But it was all based on this idea of doing what? Taking the established order and replacing it completely. James Madison talked about it. In the papal system, government and religion are in a matter consolidated, and that's found to be the worst form of government. In most governments in the old world, the legal establishment of a particular religion, and with or without very toleration of others, makes a part of the political and civil organization, and there are not a few of the most enlightened judges who will maintain that the system was favorable to either religion or government. And he's talking about what happened in the French Revolution. He says this was not favorable to either. And guess when this all happened, folks? Right at the time period Bible prophecy said it would. Bible prophecy said in Daniel 7 and Daniel 8 and in Daniel 12, I noticed I per forgot to put Daniel in there, that there would be a power who would be given an army to oppose the daily, cast truth to the ground and prosper. And we call the abomination of desolation. It would cast truth to the ground. What happened in the French Revolution? Sanctify them by thy truth. Thy word is truth, John 17, 17. What happened to God's word in the French Revolution and also in Catholicism? God's word was cast down. During the time period of the Catholic rule, what happened to the place of God's sanctuary? Justice and mercy kiss each other. It says, the foundation was, path, was cast down as well. The place of the sanctuary was cast down. Daniel chapter 8, verse 11. And what happened to the daily ministry? It was co-opted and turned into a money-making scheme that made the politicians and the populace of France sick. They were selling candles for money. They were selling holy water. They were selling masses being said for people. And finally, they drove out everybody that didn't believe that way, and they were getting sick of it because the poor were getting poorer, and the rich were getting richer, and they were a disenfranchised third estate. 
And there was this fomentation saying, you know what? We need to cast off the church. We need a whole new way. We don't like this church and state thing. You looked into churches. If you looked in the churches, you had God. Uh, if you go there even today, you look in the cathedrals, you have God pictured there with the angels. Next, you have the king and all the prelates together. And then you have <laughs> the poor people and the serfs. And they said, we don't want that anymore. And Roman Catholicism had laid the foundation for that revolution by disregarding God's word, disregarding the foundation, um, having a counterfeit sanctuary ministry, and raising itself as high as the prince. I was saying, look, Christ is not in control, but the vicar of Christ is. We are Christ on earth. And then persecuting the stars, God's people. This came right after 1798. The French Revolution was 1793 to 1798. And you know, when it started, the French Revolution, the French were the ones that started giving the power when the, 20, when the 1260 day arose. How do you remember it says that there were three horns that were plucked up in Daniel chapter 7, verse 25? How do you remember that? would pluck up three horns, and he would think to change what? Times and what? Law. This is a new thought. Okay, why don't we change times and law? <laughs> what law is it that has something to do with time? Why don't we change that? So they did that. And... They plucked up three horns as it began, Clovis did. The Ostrogoths, the Visigoths, and the Hurriates. Some years ago I was reading for one of my classes, and I came across a fascinating statement that all of these Ostrogoths and Visigoths and Hurriates were all Sabbatarian tribes. They all kept the Sabbath. So at the very beginning, they said, church, state, will get rid of the Sabbatarians. Oh yeah, they were also Aryans, some of them which I don't agree with Arianism in any sense, but I don't, I don't kill them. <laughs> you know, how many of you are with me on that? So what happens in the French Revolution? They're anti-Sabbatarian at the first, and they go all that time, and then they say, look, you guys have gotten rid of all these people and everything else. We don't like what you're doing. And during the French Revolution, what do they do? As a result of reaction against the excesses of Catholic Christianity, church-state Christianity, in the late 1700s, the Republic decided to institute a new calendar based on the decimal system. Ten days, weeks, decades, instead of seven-day weeks. Ten-hour days, 100 minutes each, instead of 60 minutes. Each minute, 100 seconds and arrest every tenth day. So they said, let's get rid of all religion in the French Revolution. And let's specifically get rid of the Sabbath. Catholics said change it to Sunday. They said get rid of it all. How did that work out? During the reign of terror, the ten-day decade was imposed by force. Churches were closed and allowed to open only on the tenth day. Mental institutions quickly filled to overcapacity. 
even the animals begin to die. So we've kind of covered our Bible study. How many of you get the point? The abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet in Daniel chapter 8, Daniel chapter 7, leads us up to 1798, right? And then Daniel 12, verse 7. Look at this one, because it's, it's giving another thing. We're supposed to understand the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, and we're understanding those dynamics. Go back with me now to Daniel chapter 12. And in Daniel chapter 12, you have the next to the last text on abomination of desolation. There's another one in Daniel 11. How many of you think I should not try and cover Daniel 11 today along with what I've told you already? So I'm going to come back to that later. I'm going to do, by the way, we're told we're supposed to understand Daniel 11 more fully at the end of time. And there's all kinds of books out there on it. And I think there, there's a lot of confusion on it. So I'm going to talk about that next week, Daniel 11. But let's go to Daniel chapter 12. And this, by the way, is the time period of the Advent movement. These texts are right there during this time period of 1843, 18, 1844. And then it says this, verse 10. Many will be purified, made white and refined, but the wicked shall do wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand, but the wise shall understand. And from the time that the daily is taken away and the abomination of desolation is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Blessed is he who waits and comes to the 1,335 days. Daniel chapter 12, verse 7 also has that other marker. Look back at verse 12. I heard a man clothed, I mean, verse 7 of chapter 12, I heard a man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the river when he held up his right hand and his left hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever, that it shall be for a time, times and a half of times, and when the power of the holy people has been completely shattered, all these things will take place. In other words, sometime after the time, times and half of times, which is, ends in 1798, there'd be a scattering and shattering of God's people. Did that happen? And then it says there's two more time periods, and they had to do with what? Verse 11. From the time that the daily is taken away and the abomination of desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. So this abomination of desolation was set up. He didn't really understand what it meant at first. But the taking away of the continual and the daily and the setting up of the abomination happened in 508. And I already talked to you about it because I gave you the Bible study at the first. This was when Clovis the Frank became the king, and married Cahilda, who was a Catholic. And somehow, when you get married, <laughs> those of you potentially thinking about this, you can be influenced by your spouse. How many of you think that's probably true? I know my wife has influenced me greatly, although we were both Seventh-day Adventist Christians before marriage. And remember I told you that 508, Clovis comes up, he, he's instrumental in helping pluck up three horns. All those three horns are what? Sabbatarian. And the concept of two abominations was developed 
by the reformers. They said the first abomination was Rome, pagan Rome, and the second was the future Antichrist. The two abomination view was held among the reformers. They believed that the first abomination was Rome, and the second was papal Rome. That coming from Daniel chapter 8, verse 8 and 9. We just read the verses after that up to verse 13. And that's what they believed. And these time periods then, and from the time that the daily sacrifice was taken away and the abomination that makes desolate was set up, there will be 1,290 days. Blessed is he that waiteth and comes to the, to the, to the 1,305 and 30 days. And then Second Thessalonians, we just read it. For the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Only he who is now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. In other words, the Roman, pagan Rome, when Paul was writing in Second Thessalonians, would get out of the way. And who would come in its place? Roman Catholicism with the church-state idea. Second Thessalonians deals with two persecuting powers, and so does Daniel 12, where they're persecuting those that don't believe the way they do, and that's exactly what happened. The Roman emperor made the pope the head of the Christian church and recognized Catholicism as the only legal religion in 538. And France ended the papal power with the sword and the deadly wound in 1798. And it was at this very time that Madison and Jefferson were saying, how do we set up a country that doesn't go through that? One of them was a Bible student. Madison was trained in theology at Princeton. He kind of went away from religion because he had a seizure disorder and everyone teased him. So he said, I don't like that. These are Christians and they tease me. And he kind of was jaundiced against Christians because of that, according to the most recent book I read on his life. But Jefferson, he just wanted to protect all religions and not get in the middle of it. He said, let's make a system where they don't keep killing each other. Can you say hallelujah to that? And by the way, he used the Bible to do that. Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar, and unto the God the things that are God's. So 508, these are the, these are the time periods, 1260 to the 1798, and then the 1335 until 1843, and Clovis the Frank was the one that came up with that church state abomination that caused ultimate desolation in the French Revolution. A new relationship between church and state emerged in Gaul, another word for France, in the 5th century that became the model for the formation of the future Holy Roman Empire. Clovis's marriage to Catilda, niece of the king of Gunnabad of the Burgundians, the Italians, and what happened, he got baptized by the pope, in 508, and he instantly went to start plucking up the three Sabbatarian hordes. And this is why Jefferson said, when we found our government, let us have a separation between church and state so they do not come together and do exactly what they have done for centuries. Freedom of religion, you can have that if you're in this country, he said. 
Or you can have freedom from religion. Now, by the way, how many of you agree with Jefferson? How many of you agree with Jefferson? How many of you don't know what to say at this point? How many of you agree with Jefferson that you should be able to have freedom for religion or no religion in this, in this nation? The commandments should not be used to rule this nation. The commandments should be in your heart. They should be in your mind. They should rule you, but not the nation. What's the first commandment? Thou shalt have no other gods before me. How many think that's going to work in America? Not going to work. Some people don't believe in God. Some people believe in a different God than you. Live and let live, said Jefferson. And by the way, the Bible says the same thing. In Romans chapter 14, verse 23, what does it say? That which is not of faith is sin. So if you make people do things because you believe it, but they don't, you're causing them to do what? Sin. And Jefferson said, you don't want to cause them to sin, do you? And so you need to have a separation between church and state. Roger Williams said the same thing. He used the metaphor long before. And you know where Roger Williams learned it? He learned it from a guy named Coke, Cook, spelled Cook, who had seen everything that happened to the Puritans at the hand of King James. So, freedom from freedom of religion or freedom from religion. As Madison said, freedom arises from a multiplicity of sects which pervades America and which is the best and only security for religious liberty in any society. For where there is such variety of sects, there cannot be a majority of any one sect to oppress and persecute the rest. How many think there's some wisdom here from Madison? How many think there's some wisdom here from Jefferson? Some real wisdom. So Clovis' new paradigm of church-state relations aided the rise and success of the Roman Catholic Church, an implication of Justinian law code, made the Pope the head of the Christian church, corrector of heretics. France ended the papal power with the sword of deadly wound. But after that, America opened up in 1798 as a Christian nation that acted like Christ when it came to different religions. He did not force or compel, did, did Jesus ever force or compel people? And at that time, the Advent movement would arise. So how many think the Advent movement has a special role given what I've said? You see, the magisterial reformers Waldo, Luther, all these folks began to persecute people that did not believe like them, right? And it came to the Anabaptist stepchildren of the Reformation to expand the Reformation, and that's, that's where you got the idea of separation of church and state. The same author, Leonard Verduin, which I'd encourage you to read, also had a book 
called The First Amendment and the Remnant, and explicitly shows how each one of those groups founded separation of church and state. That hadn't happened. There wouldn't be any Baptists here in America. There wouldn't be any Presbyterians here in America. They would have all been killed long ago. And the melting pot of America is founded on the separation of church and state, which is founded on scripture and history. Any movement in favor of religious legislation is really an act of concession to the papacy, which for so many ages has steadily warred against what? Liberty of conscience. And if you are warring against liberty of conscience, putting state and church together, that by definition is the abomination of desolation. How many of you are following me? All these things are in the mix today. People are making decisions. People are getting back and studying the Bible. I want to encourage you with these words. We are not doing the will of God if we sit in quietude doing nothing to preserve liberty of conscience. That's why I preached this sermon today. I've done my job today. Now you go tell some people. How many of you value liberty of conscience? There are many who are at ease, who are, as it were, asleep, comforting themselves with the thought that God will protect his people in the day of trouble. But God will not save us if we make no effort to do the work he's committed to our charge as faithful watchmen. You should see the sword coming and give a warning that men and women may not pursue a course through ignorance that they would avoid if they knew the truth. I think that's enough for today. <laughs> I know you may have questions. You may want to clarify some things. I'm certainly welcome and open to more deeper Bible study on those things. But I believe, folks that Matthew 24, we went through it, Matthew chapter 24 has many, 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 many cameos that have all been touched on in the current situation. And I believe Jesus is coming again soon. And I believe what we're seeing are showing us that he's about to come. Does he desire us to worship him out of fear? Do we think that we can be saved by keeping God's law? Absolutely not. The reason people keep God's law is because they love God and he writes it in their heart. If you want to review that, last week we went through what's God's main objective. And we showed how his desire is to write his law in our hearts, but he does it. And not only that, He's the one that keeps his law in and through our lives. We never could do it. And if we thought we could do it, that would be actually a sinful statement to say. But I believe Jesus is coming soon. I want to close with a hymn, number 207. It may be at morn, but, oh, that's right. We're not going to do that right now. Let's just pray, and then we'll sing um, at some future time. Let's pray. Father in heaven. 
Lord, we're so thankful today that there is a great crowd of witnesses that have thought about the things I've mentioned today much longer and more deeply than I have. Thank you for those whose shoulders we sit on. Thank you for the United States of America. Thank you for the freedoms that the thoughtful study of people like Madison and Jefferson put in. Thank you for the Declaration of Independence, which holds that we have liberty to worship God according to the dictates of our conscience and not be manipulated by others. Thank you for the Constitution. In this time when all these things are under attack, may your people and may we be committed to the study of your word and may you, through your loving example, cause us to so fall in love with you that we will move at the impulse not of our works but of your work within our lives. And may we, as a result, be able to be an example that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us that walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.